Welcome to Movie Ketchup, a podcast where two friends work on reducing their movie backlog. Each episode, we serve up a double feature discussion of movies we've selected for the other two catch up on. I'm Leanne. And I'm Greg. And we love women-centered folk music. Today, we're talking about A Night at the Roxbury and Spring Breakdown. For this episode, we chose two movies produced by former SNL cast members. How well did these funny folks succeed in creating a funny film? Let's find out. I was telling Dad about this great idea I had for the store. The store? And you're sitting around thinking about the store, Steve? You're supposed to be thinking about, hey, what's up? How you doing? Can we call you sometime, Pocahontas? You got a number? Want some of this? How about a little of that? All right. You're supposed to be thinking about our future. Why are you Mount St. Helensing on me? Well, why are you forgetting about our plans? What plans? The plans about you and I opening up only the coolest club in town, all of the Roxbury. Doug. How are we going to open up a club like that when we can't even get in? That's because we're letting them not let us in. But you know what? That is it. No more. It is time we stepped up into that sweet-ass world. And from now on, the only club we're going to is the Roxbury. But how are we going to No, get... but nothing. We can. No, we can and we will. And do you know why? We're good-looking. We're very good-looking. You especially. Thanks. Now repeat after me. We can get into... The Roxbury. We can get into the Roxbury. 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 So I chose for you the movie A Night of the Roxbury. It's a 1998 release which stars Chris Kattan, Molly Shannon, Will Ferrell, Jennifer Coolidge, Dan Hedaya, Lonnie Anderson, Michael Clark Duncan, and Richard Grieco as himself. The movie is directed by John Fortenberry, who really just has an absolute ton of TV credits including Just Shoot Me, Two Guys, A Girl in a Pizza Place, which, fun fact, is Ryan Reynolds' big breakout TV show, as well as Everybody Loves Raymond, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Gallivant, and Blackish. Yeah, a mixed bag of uh, show credits, but some good stuff in there. Yeah, for sure. The script was written by Steve Corin, who has written for SNL, Seinfeld, Superstar, Click, and Jack and Jill. And it's also written by Will Ferrell, who has penned the screenplays for Anchorman 1 and 2, Talladega Nights, Step Brothers, and most recently, the Eurovision Song Contest movie. And Chris Kattan, whose only writing credit is this movie. Uh, The tomato meter rating is 11% critic and 69% audience. Damn, I think that's maybe the lowest critic score we've reviewed yet. Uh, No, remember, Glitter only had a 6% score. (gasps) What? Oh, that's rude. I forgot. Yeah, we talked about that at length. Yeah, okay. And the tagline for this movie is score, which... I think they probably could have chosen something better, but whatever. Um, So the premise for this movie is brothers Doug and Steve Butabi have a dream of opening their own nightclub. Much to the chagrin of their father, who owns an artificial flower store, the brothers spend their nights trying to get into the hottest clubs and hook up with the hottest ladies, both of which they consistently fail at. Their father wants Steve to take over the family business and to marry Emily Sanderson, daughter of the lamp store owner next door. After a literal run-in with actor Richard Grieco of 21 Jump Street fame gets them into the Roxbury and a meeting with the club's owner, the brothers have an opportunity to move forward in making their dreams a reality. But the following day, the previous night's 
events appear to have been too good to be true and eventually caused the brothers' relationship to slip and fracture completely. Steve gets involved with Emily, leading to a hasty engagement, while Doug sinks into a pit of self-pity. On the day of the wedding, after an increasing number of second thoughts, Steve's cold feet get the better of him, and at the last second, Doug emerges to rescue his brother. The two return to their club-hopping ways, only to discover that the owner of the Roxbury, Mr. Zadir, had been trying to find the brothers since their first meeting and had turned one of Doug's club ideas into a reality, cutting them in as partners. As the final cherry on top, the two brothers meet the women of their dreams. So the reason I chose this movie is because I have very fond memories of it, particularly with respect to like the voguing in the car and definitely the music. But on this rewatch, wow, it did not age well. And I'm, I'm honestly a little bit sorry that I made you watch it. Probably a couple of days after I watched this, I was on Twitter. And if you follow us on Twitter, you probably saw that I retweeted this. But somebody had tweeted that, is it really an underrated classic? Or did you just watch it when you were 14? And it felt like the biggest call out to me for this movie. Because I was like, oh God, it's like not a good movie at all. And, you know, I'd been going on and on about like how much I love it. But before I just... Uh, ask you about sort of like what your initial thoughts were. I found two quotes from a couple of reviews of the movie from when it was released that I thought were pretty apt for basically an evaluation. One is from Anita Gates from the New York Times. And she says that the film is a lot like the brothers themselves, undeniably pathetic, but strangely lovable. Still, do you really want to spend an hour and a half with them in a dark room? And Roger Ebert said, the sad thing about A Night at the Roxbury is that the characters are in a one joke movie and they're the joke. It's the first comedy I've attended where you feel that to laugh would be cruel to the characters. So now that you have watched this delight of a film, did you know anything about it going into it? And what were your sort of initial impressions? So this is a movie that's been on my radar for a long time, largely because in high school, a lot of my friends would constantly quote this movie. They were obsessed with this movie. It was like a really big thing in the friend group that in around grade eight or nine, I kind of entered into, but they were already an established friend group. And that was kind of one of their things. Is they would always quote it, but I never like ended up watching it or anything like that. It was just it was always a movie on my radar, like, oh, I should watch that at some point. Oh, that's got a lot of like pop culture references that people are making around it's a very it. quotable movie for sure yeah for sure like but uh i could see why a bunch of eighth grade guys would love this movie <laughs> it's very that and i remember seeing it like roger's video a lot but i never picked it up or anything and i just kind of left it as very quotable it's it reeks of the snl of it all so apart from that like the the, the main things i knew about this movie were one uh the emilio I didn't know what that was in reference to. I did not know that was in reference to Emilio Estefan from Mighty Ducks, which I only found out upon watching and thought that was hilarious. I thought they just had a friend named Emilio they were constantly calling. <laughs> um, so that's great. I love that that's their one story they tell. And then I knew, obviously, the, the famous gif of them in the car that people like constantly put other faces on top of. The main one I remember being the Mass Effect characters. Um, yes. That was like really big for a while. So early, early Tumblr that, that got used in every fandom. Uh, so those are my two things I knew going in. 
First off, I don't know what that gift scene is from because I remember it as being like an open top Jeep or something. There's four people in the car. Am I wrong? Um, you might be thinking of it from a different movie then, but I, I think I know what you're talking about. Is that not from this? No. Oh, what's that from? Uh, without seeing it in front of me, on I wouldn't hmm. be able to tell you. Because I thought it was from this movie. So the whole time I'm like, where's the Jeep there? And I thought they were in a Jeep. <laughs> and then it never happened. At the very end, they were done. Like, did I just miss it? Was I that bored at times that I just like completely didn't see that scene? That was referencing. Maybe that's like on SNL or something. I don't know. So that's all I really knew going in. Uh, as far as my initial thoughts, at first I wasn't like super mad at it for the first half an hour. Like I was actually like, okay, well, Leanne said, oh God, I'm so sorry. I picked this for you like several times to before I watched this. So going in, I was like, okay, this movie's going to be really bad if Leanne's already apologizing before I've seen it. And then at first I was like, oh, this isn't that bad. Like the music is banging. Like the soundtrack of this movie is so ridiculously good it yeah. has no right to be this good every song they use or sample in this movie is like such a good song and like you can the like the club atmosphere of it all was really good like they they nailed a lot of the atmosphere stuff here and the the music the music really saves this movie like the 90s club music goes so hard and i even liked a lot their dumb dance moves were like super entertaining to watch i thought basically through the whole movie like that never really got old for me that part of the joke at least oh my god i died laughing at the beginning when they're like headbanging in the car and he like breaks the window he's like oh, i did it again <laughs> just like how many times have you broken this window enough times that their dad would be mad that they've done it again yeah I feel like if I was a parent and somebody did that in their car, like more than twice would be like, okay, replacing windows in cars is like not inexpensive. Oh, no. But then it all kind of fell apart for me as soon as they got into the Roxbury and met the owner and these two gold diggers that hooked up with them. And I just like it. You, you could chart the graph where it was like, it was starting to go up. Like, oh, I'm like, I'm having a pretty good time. It's kind of entertaining. And then it, the movie just like lost any momentum or anything it had going for it and didn't go anywhere from then on out. And it was just like a slog to get through the rest of it. Although I have to say there were moments throughout the whole movie that I did still enjoy and I never like felt the urge to like turn it off at least like it wasn't that bad like I definitely think you overstated to me how bad this movie was I thought there was enough in here that kept me going Basically, the reason why I was apologizing for asking you to watch this is because when we were picking movies for this episode, I was like, oh, you have to watch Night at the Roxbury. I love that movie. Like, <laughs> so much emphasis on, like, how much I love this movie. And then, like, I rewatched it. it. And, you know, like, just the absolute uncomfortableness of them like catcalling women and them like boxing women in at the club and just like harassing women so relentlessly throughout the whole and like everything you know the whole thing with Mr. Zadir when he's going did you grab my ass and like the underlying like homophobia that's definitely there and just like a whole bunch of things and I was just like wow I'm glad that you found enough redeeming value in it that you were able to find some enjoyment I think for me if we're going to start talking about what worked for us in absolutely no surprise to anyone who knows me at all my highlight of the movie the shining star of this movie was molly shannon the one and only molly shannon who could polish any turd to gold 
even a character that I thought like was not great, like the character they gave her, but she stole every scene she was in. I love Molly Shannon so much and just how she she started playing it very similar to a character like I'm thinking Flight of the Concords and like the obsessed fan character in there. Mm. No. Oh God. I don't remember the name. But yes, it's been a while since I watched Flight of the Concords. But Molly Shannon starts off as like this over eager, kind of wide eyed girl next door, uh, working at the shop next door is uh, super interested in Steve. And then as soon as she gets together with Steve, it kind of just like flips on a dime. And now she's like planning their entire life. She's got everything set out. She is like completely controlling him in every facet and just like completely turns on a dime, this character. And I just love how Molly Shannon did that. And I thought I thought it was so funny every scene she was in. The scene where she has like these two giant light bulbs because she works at a lamp store. And she like runs out to the car after them as they're about to leave to go clubbing. He's like, do you like my light bulbs? And like is holding them in front of her breast. Steve's like, yeah, your light bulbs look great. I mean, your actual light bulbs. <laughs> Not in a metaphorical way. Yeah. There's just so much stupid stuff with Molly Shannon that I loved. I will say that, like, the cast in this movie overall is incredible. I think everybody plays their parts, like, really well, even if, like, the characters, some of the characters are kind of terrible. They're pretty badly written, a lot of them. Yeah. One thing that I noticed in a couple of the reviews I saw when I was looking at the, the tomato meter rating on this is that it feels like a lot of like short sketches. And I think that's probably something that is just like one of the carryovers from writing sketch comedy for a show like SNL. So the, like all of the kids, like I really liked the framing. I really like Doug and Steve Butabi as characters. I like the framing of these two guys who work in a retail shop but have like have bigger dreams and are kind of like flamboyant in their character. But like the way that the story is stitched together is kind of lacking. So it had like a good framework and it definitely could have been a better movie. And I think if they weren't so aggressively pursuing women in like every fucking scene, I don't know if that would have made it better or not. It certainly would probably have helped it not age so poorly. A lot of that funny F didn't like strike me as too... I don't know. I, I didn't notice too much of that as being uh, me going, oh, God, so much as something like Clue, where like how they were treating some of the female characters and Clue, some of the male characters at times felt much more almost like aggressive. Whereas in this, I never got like a lot of overt dominance or aggression from Steve or Doug when they were pursuing women as much as just they were just so dumb about it. And they were so naive and they just didn't even understand at all how to go after a woman or anything like that like the aggressive dancing and all that was less quote-unquote aggressive for me was just they would just dance uncomfortably close to these women and like start grinding and all this stuff and then they would just like get shoved away and just like get knocked to the ground and it was just all felt dumb so i didn't get too much i don't know it just didn't come across in that way to me as much i just think about there's the one scene where there's a woman who like gets boxed between the two of them and they're both doing like their weird yeah thrust dancing and she gets stuck like she's literally trapped between them and she has to force her way out and there's also the woman that they pass on the street and they like double back to talk to her and they like block her getting past them it's just like a real experience that a lot of women have and it i don't 
know. It just felt weird. I mean, I guess the one thing is that Doug and Steve seem to be good at taking rejection, maybe just because they experience it so much. Yeah. But I don't know. It, it just hits slightly different to me, I think, because they were constantly framed to me like children. It was very non-threatening in certain ways. There are definitely scenes where the ones you point out, I specifically wrote down as well. Like, I know we're all pretty, like I was saving some of that stuff, obviously, for talking about what didn't work. But I mean, we could do all of it at once. But definitely there were certain points where it shifted really into the uncomfortable part. But for the most part, I was actually surprised at how... I don't know. Some of this, I think some of it's Will Ferrell. He does this in other movies too, where he's just very non-threatening in certain ways because he just is so dumb. The characters that he plays sometimes are just so dumb that it just hits differently than a different character doing the exact same thing. Yeah. Steve is definitely intentionally written to be as kind of like this non-threatening yeah. character as well. Doug definitely, for me, got more uncomfortable at times. Yeah. He was clearly the leader of the two as well, and the one that had potentially a few more brain cells. Like, the whole time Steve is interacting with any woman, I just went like, oh, Steve, you don't understand these people at all. I definitely, I don't think I hated this as much as you did, potentially. Like, I I had quite a few things mixed in here that I did. Like, I, looking at my notes, it's basically, like, almost a one-to-one, like, noting a line I thought was really funny. Like, there was a lot of writing in here that I thought, at times, was really good. And, like, I, I agree that, like, you could see a lot of the SNL in this because... There'd, there'd be really good little sections that would have worked well as a yeah. skit. But I think what's bad about the movie is, isn't necessarily that it's a bunch of small sketches. It's a bunch of sketches that went on too long. Like, any one of these plot lines, if you'd given it down to three minutes, would have been funnier, I think. But they don't. It's not like three-minute sketch, three-minute sketch, three-minute sketch, three-minute sketch. Like, everything is really dragged out here. Like, for example, the long extended thing with these two, uh, like, gold digger women that, like, think these brothers are really rich and start pursuing them that's like many scenes long and like goes on for quite a while and then it's dropped and like that's gone but it wasn't just like a little sketch it was so there's so many things like that where they just didn't know where it was going but in all of that I liked a lot of the characters. I liked a lot of the writing, a lot of the lines, a lot of the physical gags. Like some of the choreographed dancing in this movie alone was amazing, especially the one at the club with the two brothers and these two uh, women pursuing them, where at first they they asked like the brothers, do you want to dance? And then they're like kind of creeped out by how awkwardly they're dancing. And then like 30 seconds of montage later, they're all doing like this massive choreographed dance with the, like the head bobbing and everything. And I died laughing. Like it was really good. Like there's a lot of really funny stuff in here. Yeah. I love all of the scenes where they're like voguing in the car, like oh, the coordinated great. like head turn, like voguing over the face. Just like yeah. I can see why this is a movie that would stick with cultural consciousness and like gets quoted a lot and referenced at times, like down to like the Emilio, which is like used uh, just enough throughout the whole thing where like every half hour, 20 minutes or so, they bring up that story about Emilio again. 
and it works really well every time it comes up because it's not used too much, but it's just enough that every time they're in this awkward situation, like where they're having sex for the first time, they don't know what to do, so they just start rehashing their Emilio story again. I think the reason that great. story works as like a joke throughout is that we get the full story in like one of the early scenes, and then every time it comes up, we're like at a different part of the story. We get the bit about the phone booth, and then like the phone booth part drops away, and then it's the tipping of the hat, and then that part drops away, and then during the scene where they're having sex with Vivian and Candy that we basically just get like the end of it we're like and I was like Emilio and like that was definitely something that I quoted a lot the other thing too the cultural impact of this movie was the thing that they do where you go no yes that was definitely something yeah. that, um, I remember taking away from the movie quite a lot another thing that I think really I could see is stuck with stuck with this movie would be the, the fashion of it it's very specific in its use of fashion uh, even for the time it's not just like your typical like late 90s fashion or anything like especially how both the brothers dress was kind of surprising to me at how I used the word I don't even like this word but like metrosexual yeah like they were not afraid to do a lot of color and a lot of interesting patterns and textures and and like lots of leather and mesh and lots of like really bright colors and lots of accessories and their hairstyling and everything and it was very specifically done but they were also never I, I was kind of waiting for the shoe to drop where someone would like call them as like a, a gay slur or like make fun of them for how they dress or mock them and there wasn't really a ton of mockery of them I liked all the outfits that everyone was wearing at the clubs too like all the scenes in the clubs I only went clubbing a couple times in in my youths but I definitely loved the atmosphere of everything and I I like broke down oh there's like a lot of uh Spice World like Victoria Beckham should I wear this black dress or this black dress there's just a lot of little black dresses out there <laughs> it was great just calling back to some of like the awkward interactions they have with women there's the scene where they get pulled over by the police officer played by Jennifer Coolidge and as she's like writing them a ticket Doug is like oh she's so into you like she gave you your her number and like all of these things and it's just like one of those I remember reading on Twitter sometime this year I forget when this year has been such a blur or I probably even on Tumblr in the past the way that these things disseminate across the internet where a girl says that she likes Pepsi and a guy goes wow I also like Pepsi she's so into me and like yeah. the especially in a situation where somebody is at work they're doing their job and they're being polite to you because that is their job like it's not flirtation so that was just like another thing that was like maybe a little bit too real but again as you said both Doug and Steve more more Steve than Doug are relatively non-threatening and obviously Jennifer Coolidge's character who is accredited as hottie police officer she is good humored about it as well so they kind I of just like love the joke that like oh and we even have a court appointed date yeah <laughs> like yeah because you got a ticket yeah I love at the end when <laughs> He's like, I was really looking forward to seeing you honor before whatever the date on the ticket was. <laughs> At like municipal court. Like, you're such an idiot. Yeah, he really has a weird endearingness. I liked the brothers. I thought that like most of my problems didn't come down to the characterization at all like they were both they had such good chemistry and energy together mm -hmm. i really liked their their dynamic where doug is very clearly got all this influence over steve and he's like the smart one but also extremely clueless 
Like it was very give me very like princess um princess bride vibes where like he thinks he's smarter than his henchmen, but like eh, he's not that smart. <laughs> and then like how Steve's constantly falling on him and like every time they, they're talking to their dad and like Steve's just like immediately ready to drop everything and like submit and help his dad, like, Oh, what about cleaning the the stock room and all this? Yeah. I really like their dad as well, I just wanna say. I thought he did a good job. He was basically the same character he plays in Clueless, but that's fine because that's also a very good character. He's also a character he plays in the first one. <laughs> that's true, yeah. Uh, but he does a really good job at it. Like, he really wants the best for both of them. I like how invested he is in his flower shop, and I liked both those women whose names I do not remember now. I really liked them. I felt a little sad for them because I feel I wanted them more, a little more agency, a little more to do. I'd like to know more. Like, I just wanted to know more about their goals and motivations better because they didn't really seem to ask or how rich they are, or where their money's coming from, or really, they didn't seem, they were just very willing to go ahead and sleep with these guys. And they were clearly wanting something from them. And as soon as they found out they were poor, they completely dumped them. But like, they didn't seem very good at gold digging. They didn't try and get any money from them. We're kind of assuming that they paid for, oh, no, they didn't go to hotel today but like it was just really weird yeah they definitely make a lot of assumptions about doug and steve i just didn't know what their end game was like what was the I end don't think game what here? their end game is necessarily so important because it was really just a plot device that would ultimately break the brothers up so that the movie could move forward but i understand where you're coming from with respect to the two of them they were just we spent quite a bit of time with them and as characters, like, I thought they just deserved, a, like, a little bit more than just being a dumb plot device, especially because, I don't know, I I just felt bad for them that they, they were kind of just being used as a plot device, and that's never great when you have, like, female characters that are just there to, like, sleep with the men and then be gone, and then they're, they're just gone. I did like the scene where they're at Mr. Zadir's house, which is where they have sex with brothers, but, like, when Candy is with Doug and, like, she calls him out on the fact that, like, he has moved past the pickup line stage and it's yeah. very evident to her and to us that he doesn't know how to move past that stage because he's never had an opportunity to do so. You know, she has a good amount of empathy for him. I mean, the fact that they basically, like, pity fuck both of them. But Yeah, I, I, I liked both characters a lot. I... That's why I wanted more with them. You know, even the fact that she finds out that, you know, it's his first time and is not put off by that, which I think in a lot of other movies would probably be the case. And the fact that it's their first time is never a point of criticism. Same with the way that they present themselves. Like, it's just like yeah. it's a stated fact and then it is resolved and then like we move on with things. So I like that, you know, the fact that they were virgins at the time and, you know, it's just like their whole presentation. That was never sort of part of the jokiness of their characters. I also really liked the scene where Steve is with Vivica and he's talking about his idea for a Twilight Zone episode where like people in the paintings can like also look at us like we're painting and she thinks it's weird. But I thought it was just such a good example of the different way that Steve thinks about things. Yeah. It really kind of gave his his character a little bit more depth and interest because, you know, you get he, ha he clearly has good ideas about things, but 
other people don't necessarily interpret his ideas as being good because they have a different way of thinking. And Doug is definitely kind of one of those people because he's very quick to brush his brother off or downplay his ideas in favor of his own. Yeah. But yeah, there's definitely a lot of good things that are going on in this movie. I also love that we get our uh, standard Lachlan Monroe as Craig in this. The guy who shows up in literally everything. Everything. He's the trainer, right? Yeah. Oh, I like him. He's such a great Canadian, just standard actor that just shows up at literally everything and is playing these bit roles. And he's in like some really big movies. And then he's in some like terrible low budget Christmas movies and other things. And like he's in everything. But I love Craig as this trainer guy that kind of becomes the third wheel. And like when Doug and Steve kind of have their split off, Doug tries to like make Craig his new Steve and like take him to the club. And it like clearly isn't working out. And then in the end when, uh, oh God, I didn't write, I just kept, my whole notes, I just referred to Molly Shannon as Molly Shannon and like didn't even bother figuring out what her character's name is. Her name is Emily. Emily, of course. I liked that Craig ended up with Emily in the end, that (laughs) when the wedding gets broken up, uh, Craig runs up and like confesses his love and like they are clearly like a very good match right away. And she's just like, yep, we're doing it. We're getting married. (laughs) I like that they each got each other in the end. That was nice. Uh, as overbearing as Emily was, I, I was like a little concerned that they were taking her character into like that shrew like place where it's like, haha, look at her. She's such like an overbearing, horrible woman type of thing where it's like that big caricature that I actually thought that like she was doing Steve a lot of good at this at times. And like I wrote down in my notes a bunch, Steve, just drop Doug, drop all these other people in your light and go get with Emily and break down that wall between the, the lamp shop and the florist and do it. Just do it. She seems good for you. And then when they get together, it's like, oh, okay, maybe not perfect for you, but maybe yeah. she's perfect for someone else. And maybe that's Craig. I think it's so funny in a lot of movies where there are weddings that the linchpin that determines whether or not a wedding can go forward is, well, I've already paid the caterer. The whole wedding is already expensive as hell but like yeah you've paid the caterer so that's always the the one thing i also loved that during the wedding as emily's walking down the aisle the officiant is on the phone making arrangements for other things and then he's like okay like gotta go like leave me a message and then when craig steps in to marry emily instead he's like this is gonna be a new fee are we okay with that yeah that's fine he is making bank on what (laughs) whatever it is that he's doing but he was just in the movie for such a short amount of time but i loved him a lot yeah one thing that snl does really good is all the bit characters and small characters and this definitely didn't disappoint with all the little side characters even people who barely showed up like hottie cop jennifer coolidge as hottie cop these Mm -hmm. little tiny bits they just work or then we've got Credit Vixen, who her interactions with Doug throughout the movie are so short, but her character is also incredibly great, and I loved her a lot. Yeah, I love her. I, I just wrote down, it's the lesbian for Legally Blonde! <laughs> <laughs> You're right, it is the lesbian from Legally Blonde. I didn't piece that together. So most of my uh, references go, it's like, it's X person from X thing. I was watching a uh, Christmas movie on Netflix today, Christmas on the Square, and one of the characters... For like five, ten minutes, it was like, how do I know you? I know you from something. What is it? I'm like, oh, you were on season five of So You Think You Could Dance. 
Yeah, I watched a lot of that show. I love seeing random people show up. Uh, Should we talk about some things that didn't work quite as well for us? I know that we've already touched on a few things. Yeah, we we would sprinkle in the mound throughout, but uh, yeah, definitely. In my initial notes, I said that a lot of the jokes don't land, and I certainly did not laugh at all during my first rewatch. But I watched it this afternoon, and there were definitely a few places where I certainly, like, had a good chuckle, and... I mean, I don't hate this movie. It was basically, I felt embarrassed that I said that I loved this movie so much. And then I was like, uh, aged really badly in like not a good way. But it really is endearing and there are things that I like about it. But definitely, and I know we've sort of talked about some of the jokes already. You know, the scenes going on a little bit too long. The joke that they did where people are like, oh, you're brothers. And they go, no, yes. After two times of that, it was okay, that's enough. But that's more a small nitpick type thing. Uh, One thing that really bothered me, especially when I was watching it today, is... It's like the day before the wedding and Steve is talking to their father and he's basically describing that he literally wants to kill Emily. Oh, so funny And his though. dad is just like, those are normal feelings. And I was just like, God, he- like heteronormative marriage culture is like so toxic. I wrote that down as like, this is my favorite line in the movie because I <laughs> was like on the ground laughing. It was so funny. It's like, is it normal to have feelings of like take a pencil, just like shove it up her nose and like impale her brain? <laughs> he's just toothbrush it's like yes yes these are perfectly normal feelings the funny the thing that makes that scene funny is like the look on his father's face is obviously like real concern but he really is more concerned about the merger between these two businesses but like people really do have legitimate concerns like this before they're getting married and people are like yeah 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 that's totally normal I'm like if you literally hate the person that you're about to marry like that's not a normal feeling you see weird wedding photos of men with their groomsmen about you know like how marriage is a prison and like all kinds of like weird weird ass stuff and it just really felt like it uh fit into that sort of jokey negativity about marriage and it's like if that's how you feel about it like you really should not be getting married at all but yeah the the whole description of you know what he wanted to do to emily and like are these feelings normal certainly funny but like the sentiment behind it was definitely concerning great people be crazy they definitely do yeah my big thing with this movie every movie i feel like i I always did my first thing and then the negative section is always i did like the plotting or the plot structure or that pacing and it's like yeah basically that again i actually wrote down a note very early on well i'm actually surprised that i'm actually don't have any problems with this pacing right now i think this whole very simple conflict of they want to get into the roxbury club they've never been in there and they keep getting booted out and they can't get in like that's enough to string me along like for some hijinks and fun like if the conflict is just we want to get into this club we can't get into and we're just doofuses like posers and all that and i'm like oh okay this this is fun it's like it's getting me along we're meeting these people and then as soon as they get into the club just like eight plot lines get kind of thrown out there and drop and brought back and it just lost control and i just wrote down okay i was lying before this movie literally has no plot (laughs) like once they get in the club all their goals and motivations seem to kind of peter out like their whole thing to pitch their idea to mr zadir the club owner we see like one scene of them in the club pitching ideas and then one scene of them going to this meeting and like getting kicked out and then at the very end it's brought up again but for the rest of the movie that's not any of the conflict anymore the conflict then switches completely from we want to get into the club to we want to pitch this idea to dealing with women to uh, i'm mad at my brother there's a wedding 
Oh, and then the club thing gets brought back up. And things were just coming and dropping, like the dating these these two women who are the gold diggers. That's like in the very middle section there, and then just, just gone. And then the Molly Shannon thing that started in the beginning kind of drops off and then gets brought back towards the end. And it felt like all these different movies and plot lines... And I just wanted some sort of basic follow through something to anchor the movie, especially if you're just going to have a bunch of small skit like scenes and you want it to just fill it with that kind of stuff. Very jokey, very similar to some of other Will Ferrell movies, even stuff like Anchorman. Like you don't need a lot of plot in there, but just something that's taking us from beginning, middle to end. I would say that the primary through line in this movie is that they want to open or at least Doug wants to open a club of their own. And so that um, is kind like... Of. It's, it's dropped hard though no i know but if we had to choose something that's kind of the through lines so it's like they want to open their club they get to meet mr zadir and they pitch a club idea and then at the end he's made them a partner in this club that he's opened based on their idea so like it kind of is there but yes like there's not a lot of major connection between those things happening one thing that bothered me a little bit was like they show up mr at mr zadir's office without an appointment to have this meeting and then at the end of the movie he's like i've been trying to find you guys and I was like, pick up a fucking phone. They could have called yeah. his office after they got kicked out and like made an appointment. If he was going to open an entire club, he could have looked them up in the phone book. They they have under his dad's name a business. Yeah, I think probably on Mr. Zadir's side of things, like his driver or whatever, who clearly has a chip on his shoulder about the whole fluffy whip thing and dislikes the brothers. Like he could have thrown a wrench in the ability to find them, but like they certainly could have just been like, well, walking in and making an appointment didn't work for us. But I think part of the problem that Doug and Steve have as characters is they don't really have great follow through. You know, yeah. they had this opportunity. They tried to follow through on it. They failed. It's, it's like that whole thing with women, you know, where they get rejected by one woman and they just immediately turn around and try again with somebody else. There's like no follow through on anything and like that's not a great example because if a woman rejects you like let it go but at least if they find out that they need to have an appointment like the next step would just be to make an appointment yeah i kind of i kind of expected it to be to be kind of uh, a series of hijinks where throughout the movie they were trying to meet back with zadir and it was just always he was they were just always missing him or the the security guard was always stopping them or interrupting them and then on zadir's side like having little scenes of like him trying to to find them and like just missing them and it being that like wacky hijinks where like oh they just keep missing each other and then in the end like he's opened this club and they find they stumble upon it like and it's like oh they're very satisfying after like them just missing each other the whole movie to stumble upon the club it's like oh i've been looking for you guys everywhere and like that would have given it more of a through line at least for mm-hmm. me but i think the movie really wanted to be about the relationship between the brothers which fair enough but that really i don't know how they could have done that better to make that more of the focus like it, it kind of was but i guess they what that wasn't enough of a through line for me with just it being focused on the brothers yeah because there were a lot of external elements to the relationship that were drawing focus away from that and it became yeah. kind of muddied because of that question for you as i was watching this today especially during the wedding scene when duck is playing what is love and and then the brothers like run to meet each other along the pool side. Do you think that this movie would be improved if it was about two people pining for each other, but were not related? Just to say, would this movie be better if the characters were queer? I mean, no, it wouldn't be because you still have Will Ferrell writing it and it would be bad. <laughs> like it would be an SNL 
it, it would be Seth Meyers from the next movie we're going to be talking oh, about. Oh, God. It would be that, Leanne. Like, that's what it would be. If someone else was writing it, and if it was handled in a different way, and you just took the setting and basic premise and characters from this movie and gave it to someone who was going to write it in that way, in a non-offensive, non-stereotypical way, potentially... But I think what kind of does work about this movie is that they're using almost like romance coding the relationship between these two brothers. It hits a lot of beats towards the second half of the movie that mirror classic rom-com beats in a mm-hmm. kind of an interesting way, I think, that's doing it with brothers. And I think that worked. The boombox at the wedding, even the like phoning up Doug and Doug uh, pretending to leave this answering machine message. And like, while well, he's like stuffing his face with pizza. And it was like, it was very rom-com scene, like a lot of stuff in here. I did love Steve calling his brother yeah. standing outside the pool house. Yeah. Like you can literally see him through the window, but he's like, I'm not here right now because I'm too busy outside living it up. Unlike my pussy whipped brother who's too busy throwing his life away for Emily. And then Steve goes, hi. <laughs> Hi, Doug. Sorry I missed you. It's just, oh, God. Oh, Steve. Yeah, no, definitely. Like the scene where where Steve is at the club, or sorry, where Doug is at the club with Craig and, like, trying to fill that hole with Craig and it's just not working. He's not the same as Steve and, like, and I think that worked in this movie, it not being romantic and just kind of being coded that yeah, way. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm definitely 100% for movies that are about siblings. Like, I usually, like, I love movies that are focused on sisters because, like, that's something that I can relate to because I have sisters. But just, like, sibling relationships and, like, platonic relationships in general are just really important. And I like movies that put that as the focus. But I was just, I was really picking up this afternoon when I was watching it on, like, the romance stuff. And I just wanted yeah. to sort of float the idea I'm like, would this movie work if the story was queer? It's definitely there, and I think they're using it in a, in a very specific yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. And I don't want Will Ferrell doing anything, like, remotely close to this. And I get, I think you said the other person who either directed this or wrote this did Jack and Jill, which, big yikes. <laughs> big yikes. Uh, <laughs> I can't think of many movies off the top of my head that are worse I mean, really, that. when I say, would this movie work better if it was queer? I mean, if we don't change anything about the movie, other than the fact that Doug and Steve wouldn't be brothers, we don't need to really do I mean, anything else with the movie. All the stuff they with them and the women, is that just them, like, being secretly closeted or something and trying to, like, suppress their feelings then? Yeah, probably. Like, I don't know. It gets weird, I think, if you try and take Fair it enough. that way. So after all of that, where would you put this on the ketchup scale? Perfect as is, could use ketchup against it. Uh, I would put it under could use ketchup. I don't think you would have to douse this one. I think there's enough there between the soundtrack and the physicality of the, of just how they move and act and dance. I think the relationship between the brothers, some of the, the jokes I think are pretty good still. And a lot of the side characters work for me. There's a lot here that didn't age, obviously, like you said, but... I think it just could use some ketchup. And otherwise, it's I, I can see why people look back on this fondly. Like, I don't think it's a complete train wreck. Yeah, I agree that it could use ketchup. After re-watching it the first time, I was definitely sitting much closer to the Dowsit camp. But on re-watching it again today, after having sort of a little bit of breathing room from my first rewatch in a while, and, the you know, the more that I have time to percolate and think about it, I definitely think that it's more of a, a could-use ketchup. It's not so, so terrible. Also, I have to mention, Molly Shannon climaxing while screaming, Ikea! Yes. Oh my god. So funny. That whole scene is so weird. College was rough. It was a learning experience. 
I want to go with you, Becky. Where? To spring break. You do? Let's go! We never went to spring break in college. I could trade in my first class tickets for three coaches. And I have a suite at the Four Seasons! Ah! Ooh, I've never stayed at a Four Seasons. This is the kind of vacation that we need. We do need to shake things up a little bit. Great. What would Honey want us to do? <laughs> hey, Becky. You really need to bury that cat. So my movie I picked for you is Spring Breakdown. This is a 2009 movie directed and written by Ryan Shiraki with story credit here from Rachel Dratch. Ryan, this is his second film after a 2004 debut called Freshman Orientation that I think I've heard of. The description of that is a horny college freshman pretends to be gay to be near the beautiful co-ed he desires. So it sounds terrible. And following those two movies, he basically just did a bunch of TV, which seems to be a theme for us. People directing one or two movies and then doing a lot of TV. Notably, a lot of the show Awkward, which I never watched, but I saw a lot of around the internets at the time. So apart from a UCB short, this is actually Rachel Dratch's only writing credits on Oh, IMDb. really? Yeah, I was I was surprised that I thought she'd written more. I was also surprised that Chris Kattan didn't have more writing credits. So it's interesting how certain SNL alum do a lot of writing and some yeah. just don't do any. So this movie stars the trio of Parker Posey, Rachel Dratch, and Amy Poehler as our three leads, with so many small cameos and other roles by notable people. Just listing some off here, Seth Meyers, Will Arnett, Justin Hartley, Missy Pyle, Kristen Cavallari, Jane Lynch, oh, I love Jane Lynch, uh, Loretta Devine, Leslie Grossman, Mae Whitman, and a little note in here, apparently Army Hammer is in this, although I did not see him, but apparently he's in it. And fun trivia about that, apparently according to IMDb, when asked what IMDb credit he'd like to have removed, Army Hammer named this movie. <laughs> Don't forget to mention Amber Tamblin, who plays the yes, central yes, Amber uh, Tamblin, premise sorry. of this movie. I did have that in there, I think. Yeah. So this tomato meter is 55% critic and 27% audience, which is very strange for us because usually these kind of movies have a, like a much higher audience score than the lower critic score, like some of these SNL types. But yeah, I was really surprised that only a 27% audience tomato meter. The score on this one is much more balanced than for A Night of the Roxbury. Yeah. I mean, it's got double critic score and the audience score. It's pretty big. Yeah. Uh, so the horrible tagline for this is Paybacks a Beach. Ugh, it's bad. So the premise here is that three best friends, Becky, Judy, and Gail, fear they've been living boring, uneventful lives since leaving college. This all changes when Becky gets tasked by the senator she works for to go on spring break, track down her daughter. When the current vice president resigns in scandal, the senator is eyeing that position but can't have her daughter caught in a spring break scandal. So instead of their regular vacation, the three friends decide to relive their college experience they never quite had and spring break together with Becky. Once there, however, the madness of South Padre, Texas spring break starts to set in and many zany antics ensue. So this is a movie that, similar to you, I had very fond feelings of not quite, uh, obviously I was a little older when I first saw this. I remember specifically renting this by myself at Rogers Video. This is in the kind of twilight years of Rogers Video a few years before it shut down. And this is one that I just picked up on a whim just because I believe it was Amy Poehler who really drew my eye at the time. I don't think I was too familiar with Rachel Dretch or Parker Posey. And I just picked it up. I'm like, this looks goofy and I know these people. I'm going to rent it. 
and I've never heard anyone talk about it. I've barely heard anyone talk about it since. No one knows what this movie is, even though there's like a huge cast. And I remember laughing my ass off, quoting it a bunch, trying to get everyone new to watch it, although it wasn't super successful. So I'm curious what, if you'd ever heard of this movie and what your initial impressions are. I had never heard of this movie. Yeah, literally when you said that this was the movie that I was going to watch, I was like, okay, don't know anything about it. Didn't know anything about who was in it. Nothing at all. I mean, I don't think that's too unusual with some SNL movies. A lot of them fly under the radar. I did see, just as I was like compiling a list of characters from a reference, that apparently this movie was like released three years after it was actually produced because the production company that did it like went under and it got a straight to DVD release which is probably why. That would make sense. Yeah. I didn't love it. I love Amy Poehler and I love Parker Posey and I love Rachel Dratch. The cast is incredible, but just, I don't know. I didn't, I wasn't crazy about it. There were certain things that I liked, but I think the way that they are, those things are framed within the context of the movie. didn't work for me so well. And part of that is, it has a lot to do with like the main character's and also Ashley. And of course, we'll get into sort of what things didn't really yeah. work for me. At, I but. I had a somewhat similar thing to you when, with the Night at Roxbury, where I watching this back, I thought to myself, I don't know if Leanne's really going to like this. <laughs> it mostly held up for me. I definitely can still see why I liked this when I first watched it. And a lot of my favorite parts of it are still there. But there's a lot of stuff in here it's a lot. <laughs> uh, we'll talk about it. Uh, so what were some of the things that did work for you? Well, obviously, as already noted, it has an incredible cast. I really liked Jane Lynch as Senator Hartman. She was just so big and so much and just was really selling this big personality Texas senator. Oh, yeah. So I loved her a lot. I really liked the dynamic between Gail and Becky and Judy, who are the three best friends. I thought that their friendship dynamic was good. One of my favorite things was sort of like this running joke that was a misunderstanding between Jody, who's played by Rachel Dratch, and this guy, Doug, who's just this very beefcake, Abercrombie kind of guy, because there's a scene um, where Justin she, like... Hartley is a favorite. That yeah. is also a large reason why I liked this movie. I will just put that out there. I was just a very handsome face. Yeah. But there's a scene where Jody, she comes back, she's very drunk, she climbs into bed in what she thinks is her hotel room, and in the morning she wakes up, she's in bed with this very handsome man, she looks under... The blanket she's not wearing anything and made me think of the movie bitches review of little italy where they're talking about emma roberts doing that thing where she's looking underneath and how avril hates yeah. the cliche of that anyway so she thinks that she had sex with this guy and then every time she sees him afterwards there's like this weird interaction that they have where you know she like gives him this very longing look and he has no idea who the fuck she is and it's probably like the best running joke for me in the whole movie and it I has a really it. good payoff at the end where she basically tells them like they can't be together and like she values their time together and then he kisses her. So like she well, gets like, to Josh Groban is slowly playing in the background. It's <laughs> like so extra. Goodbye, my lover. <laughs> yeah. And uh -huh. then there's like, you know, these longing glances back and forth between them as she's 
leaving the beach is just like so weird and strange, but was definitely probably the funniest part for me. I did also really like their performance at the end of the talent show, seeing the um, Wilson Phillips song, Hold On. Oh, so Something good. I thought that was funny about that is one of the people they have in their band is playing a violin, but the version of the song that they're playing has zero violin in it at all. So it's just like very at odds where she's like basically pantomiming playing the violin, obviously, but it just doesn't fit into the music that you're hearing. I think that's partly intentional and partly not intentional, but it just really worked for me. I also like Bruce Blanche like crying at the end of their performance. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Even though he's... I forgot to mention he's in this, yes. Terrible. <laughs> for me, what I think I was starting to realize when I first watched this movie is that I am very much like Becky, Gail, and Judy. I, I identify with them on an uncomfortable level. And I don't think I fully accepted that when I watched this movie when I was 18 or whatever. But now, being in my 30s with the same decade as these women fully embrace their lifestyle and I absolutely love them and the movie does it, it, it plays with their boring lives in kind of a tongue-in-cheek way like a little bit making fun of them but also by the end of the movie they've come to accept that these are the people they are and like that's not a bad thing and they're fully embracing it and I kind of love that about this movie that they're allowed to just be these fabulous single women that have each other as friends and like that's enough and I just love Love how this movie starts especially like the first 15 minutes where it opens with them and in college at the talent show singing through colors it's a really good rendition of through colors too like i absolutely love it you've got like the stevie mix bandanas tied around they're like very like folk women and amy poehler's stupid vest she's wearing well she's like playing the bongos to true colors so it's so great and then the music stops and it pans to the audience and it's dead silent and then someone just goes and they get booed off the stage as like this cheerleading squad like tramples them over running on stage to good vibrations and the whole crowd just jumps up and they're screaming and losing their shit to this cheerleading squad doing good vibrations and it set the tone so well for the movie for me and then I love the fake out where uh, it goes 15 years later and we see these three fashionable business ladies walking down the street from behind and we're supposed to assume it's our three leads and then our three actual leads bump into them like spill coffee and they go oh I might have a, mo- a voice tell that <laughs> and they're like clearly nothing like these women and they are just the same women they were from college I love that Becky's like it's fine I'll just stop at TJ Maxx on the way to the office yeah. we don't have TJ Maxx in Canada though so I don't really understand it's winners okay it's winners it's like fashion for less everything got it honestly the, the relationship between these three reminded me a lot of us and I'm not even mad about it the idea of like a make your own pizza party as their big highlight of their week is like yeah that sounds awesome I want to do a make your own pizza party I want to play the movie numbers game <laughs> the movie numbers game is so dumb but it gets me every time and it just like reminds me how much like we play heads up and stuff and it's great yeah I was like I don't know why these women's lives are being shown as if they're boring I was like a make your own pizza night awesome the movie numbers game at home karaoke fridays yes that's ideal (laughs) going out is so fucking expensive especially for karaoke i've definitely suggested we go and do karaoke before but you've told me no yeah gail what's wrong you love women-centered folk music (laughs) (laughs) but like at the same time as the movie was like quote-unquote making fun of them for that 
it kind of wasn't like in the end that's back to the status quo and they're like being celebrated for it and they think they want something else but then when they get a taste of something else they realize actually our lives were great and we love each other and we love playing the movie numbers game and we don't need anything else especially the fact that none of them are in relationships at the end we always talk about how much we wish movies would be about friendship more and like not have to be any even relationship it was just so nice for this movie to not deal with that that was all a few side plots but that wasn't the main focus it was the relationship between these women i think that's what always brings me back to this movie it's just like the relationship between these three is so wholesome and and nice yeah, I would agree that that's definitely a benefit. I also like completely forgot that it starts with, with uh, Becky's cat dying. Like, oh god, this scene is too real. We dedicate this make your own pizza party to you, honey. Just later on, like, honey got me these pants. <laughs> Cats can't buy you pants. Yeah, Becky's relationship with her cat are some things that I have under my things that didn't really work for me. <laughs> but we'll get there. We'll get there. So some other things that really worked well for me is. A lot of the side characters they meet in South Padre are very dear to me, especially one of the first people they meet at the Four Seasones, which uh, I wrote down hits a bit different in 2020 <laughs> after the Four Seasons landscaping incident. I forgot about that. <laughs> so the fact they're at like an off-brand Four Seasons was, did the, I did not miss the irony of that. It was great. When they show up to the Four Seasones Hotel and uh, Missy Pyle as Charlene is there at the entrance, <laughs> like this is my 18th spring break, woo! And she's just this clearly aged out of the spring break demographic older woman that is thin through it she is such a mess but she is so endearing and i love missy pile <laughs> and even her character's like kind of a complete joke every time she shows up i just laugh and smile like i love her she has so many good lines too and then the sevens I'm curious what you think of the sevens. I actually thought they were really funny. It was such a caricature of sorority girls. Basically, the sorority that Amber Tamblyn's character, Ashley, the daughter of the senator, there's this big sorority at her school, and that's why everyone ends up in South Padre, because Ashley follows them to South Padre, trying to win back her ex-boyfriend that is now dating one of these sorority girls, Mason. Yeah, but like the seven are these all airheads, very skinny, attractive, mostly white... There's like the one Asian one, sorority girls, and they're so characterized and they're so dumb, but I found them very endearing, especially Mason, basically the only one that gets lines or dialogue. I don't know. I just, I thought they were really funny. I like that one of their first things is all proceeds will support binge drinking, promiscuity, and public nudity. <laughs> oh, they were so dumb. And then the whole plot line with Gail kind of becoming the eighth member. She's a guide dog trainer. And she uses her training of dogs to kind of get these men to leave the girls alone at a club by, like, snapping at them like dogs, going, here, boys, here, boys, who wants a glow stick? And then just, like, hucking some glow sticks off into the mid-distance, and they just chase after these glow sticks. <laughs> and they're like, wow, you saved us. Like, uh, men are just dogs with thumbs. <laughs> and then she, like, gets adopted into their group. And her whole weird storyline getting adopted into this group really worked for me. I like that she completely loses all sense of herself, just completely becoming one of them. She's getting, she gets cornrows. She starts dressing in like the stupidest clothing. It's like teaching them this stupid choreographed dance. It's great. I love Amy Fuller. Yeah, I did like the sevens. I thought that they were 
pretty funny by and large because yes mason who's the leader of you know the sorority group nobody else really has an opportunity to like do too much or they have a, a funny one-liner but it's you know a setup for somebody else's joke and definitely the reason why that all works is a lot of amy poehler's involvement with those characters for sure yeah. let's tell each other our secrets and then one of the screams out i can't read she's <laughs> like what kind of college sorority girls and if you can't read i yeah i laughed a lot at that line uh, i was kind of expecting something similar to pitch perfect where you've got the the one girl who speaks really quietly and it would be like yeah. i killed somebody like that's the kind of thing i was expecting someone to reveal <laughs> as their secret because it would not have shocked yeah. me in the slightest not at all but no i thought that they were a good group and i thought that it was an interesting part of gail's character story i think her story worked the best for me out of the three of them i thought she had kind of probably the most complete arc kind of like learned she definitely the, most. Had the most to do out of the three yeah. characters judy really spends her whole time trying to get laid yeah and then she thinks that she does and then that becomes, becomes kind of like, like a running a joke serious alcoholic with uh with charlene and they're oh just God. like her and charlene are out partying in very inappropriate places and just doing keg stands and just getting wasted and, and her whole thing with with Doug, yeah. And then poor yeah. Becky doesn't really... I think one of the biggest sins in this movie, which we can get to again, would probably be the uh, criminal underuse of Parker Posey. She definitely spends the whole movie as the straight man character that doesn't go and, like, get go wild or anything. She's just trying to keep Ashley in check and, like, keep her friends in check and doesn't let herself go loose except for, like, the one scene. So she definitely didn't have so much to do. But I, I thought both Judy and Gail had good jobs to do. Yeah, I feel like Becky was kind of set up to be more of the central character oh, for sure. and then she ended up being a side character until pretty much the end like, of we the movie in with her just as much but she's not getting the big laughs although i did love a lot of her scenes where we don't need to have alcohol and sex to have fun and then like i know something else we could do and i'll just like cut to them like ribbon dancing through like the beach or like flying kites or like macrame and stuff oh it was really funny i did like all that stuff i related heavily to her like yeah all of those things totally. are great i would have been super into it i'm a very boring 33 year old woman and i think this movie does a good job embracing that like that's a totally valid and wonderful thing one of the major things for me is that we really don't have the same relationship to spring break in canada that they do in the u.s so yeah, like for sure. a lot of the times movies like this i have a hard time just identifying with it because it is not an experience or even like a thing that we really think about in the same way and i don't know if it's different in like larger universities in canada where people like go away for yeah. spring break or or what I the but same it's, thing like, down. I guess... it's not really a thing here to like spend your spring break going to the beach getting naked and drunk and crazy i don't know yeah. personally anyone that spring break we have a spring break and i mean the weather here isn't it's not like super cheap to just like get a flight down to texas like that's international and like it's a big flight to like go to texas or florida or something to like mexico or mexico like that's super expensive uh going from canada i did know people in high school and uh, elementary school and stuff like that who like on spring break would go to those places but like with their family but in terms of yeah a university experience like, i don't know if 
anybody who, I mean, spring break is the reading week and it's in fucking February. Spring break so was like, often like you go home to visit your family if you're on the dorm or yeah. you go take a vacation, like a campsite or something. Yeah. It's a lot of going camping and stuff like that. Yeah. So I, I, I agree. But like, I think out of all the spring break type movies I've seen, it was kind of funny because like when I was trying to tell you what movie to watch, I kept naming the wrong spring break movie because there's quite a few movies with spring break in the title. Like the one I was constantly getting mixed up with is Spring Breakers, which is terrible. Don't watch it. It's too much James Franco for a movie. I think this movie gives me the most fun, farcical image of what Spring Break would be like. And I think it did a good job of, for someone who doesn't really know what Spring Break is, of kind of explaining all that to me. And like, I'm sure this is very unrealistic, I assume, but it was really funny. It reminded me a lot of like the Arrested Development Spring Break episode or episodes where I think that's the whole thing where like his sperm gets like taken by his assistant down to Spring Break or something and they have to go get it back. I don't know. It's a whole plot line in Arrested Development, but it's very similar to this where it's just like naked bodies everywhere in the blazing hot sun on a beach and that's the image of Spring Break you get. And this definitely cranked that up to 11. I wrote down like how much did this movie cost to make it extras? There are so many extras and like I assume they didn't just go and film this at Spring Break. They had to get like the rights to film all these people and like these are probably paid extras there's a lot of people at this movie naked on the beach (laughs) well when we were still living in vancouver i had an opportunity but i didn't get to go and be in a crowd scene for josie and the pussycats because they filmed that (gasps) at the um oh my god yeah that would be my life's biggest regret I do regret it, but it was, you weren't allowed to wear shirts that had any logos on it. And I don't think that I had anything that was logo free and I don't think I had a way of getting there, but they filmed it at the, um, what is the one that's at the P&E? It's not Pacific Coliseum, is it? Anyway, that's where it was filmed. And I had an opportunity to go and do that. And it was just like, there was a notice that you could go and do the thing. And it was just like a big crowd scene. And I don't, I think you probably sign a release when you go, but those kinds of things for like very large crowd scenes, I don't think are paid. Yeah, I guess they probably wouldn't be paid, but like, there's a lot of people. We just need people to be on a beach. Like, it, it was definitely very authentic feeling like they clearly filmed this on location with tons of real people having real spring break one thing that i was wondering about is is it realistic that people just share one room and there's just tens of bodies on the floor that you just climb across as you come in maybe the force is own ace (laughs) oh god and then like there's a scene as well where this is just before their ribbon dancing or whatever across the beach there's a girl who just like straight up vomits on the sand on the beach and i was like can you imagine like god. you're like i'm gonna go like ribbon dancing or whatever on the beach and oh, you step god. in somebody's alcohol vomit oh it was like so gross if you probably a very real thing and there were so great. many people on the bs a lot fucking salsa wrestling oh my god <laughs> it was clearly not salsa as well it was like very weird and pink i yeah. don't know what it was i think it was like one of but... ashley's friends who's like i'm allergic to tomatoes I feel like that's probably Um, why it's usually jello because it's less allergen containing. I don't know. I mean, salsa is going to get your eyes and sting like a mother. Like, oh my God. Sometimes it's spicy. Like, that seems like a poor choice. Yeah, that scene was something. Also, when Asha gets thrown in and it's like two on one, she's like, two on one, that's not fair. And they're like, that's right. They just chuck her other friend in there with her. Like, oh God, people should be able to consent to this. And then even when Becky gets in and then she her like top falls off and there's like a Girls Gone Wild style guy who's filming the whole thing like, this is very degrading to women. Like, yep. God, I just, I love so many of the quotes in this movie. I wrote down 
so many different things, but just the flashback scene with Jane Lynch's senator where they're like, aren't you worried that your daughter, something's going to happen on spring break? And she goes, it's just spring break. And then you get a flashback to her, like having this wild ass spring break and getting tattooed, like on the beach in the back of a truck. And she just, like, you just hear her voice, 80 yard in the background screaming, somebody impregnate me. (laughs) (laughs) Died laughing so hard. And it cuts back and she's like feeling where the tattoo is and she's like okay yeah maybe someone should check on her the first scene of them in south padre of our three uh leads and just like a girl walks up to them and just like flashes them and amy puller just slaps her and goes get it together it's just <laughs> oh rachel dratch as soon as she has like a sip of tequila just like the next shot is just her running around screaming slut slut i'm gonna be a slut who wants to do me <laughs> whose shoe is this yeah. that's your shoe judy bullshit <laughs> Just like Rachel Dretch was giving it to me. Like it was hilarious because it was literally just, oh, I, I don't touch the hard stuff. Like, do you guys have any white wine? But then she just like one shot of tequila that's just, just done for the rest of the movie. I think some people would say that's just what tequila does to you. Oh, yeah. I personally disagree, but. You look like my Nana. Thank you. <laughs> I love everything Becky wears, like all the clothing in this movie, too. Like, I was oh. literally just going to say that the outfits in this were great. The scene with like, Becky's gaucho pants, where they like call her out, I was like, that whole outfit was just, uh, I love that. She looks great. I loved her poncho type things she was constantly wearing. My absolute favorite, though, is Gail's blue dress with the yellow fanny pack. I really wrote down, like, this is iconic. I remember this look so strongly of just like this very blue, blue dress with a very contrasting yellow fanny pack that she walks into the club with. It's so bad, but yet I love it. Yeah, the three dresses that they're wearing when they go into the club and that scene were all really good, but especially Gail's yeah, fanny pack. Yeah, the matching colors. The memorable. Yeah, really good. Yeah. Oh, yes, especially the fanny pack. Um, one thing I really appreciate about this movie, especially contrasting to back to United the Roxbury, is... I really appreciated the very basic, simple setup and plot line, and it was very easy to follow. We've got the senator whose daughter is going on spring break because of like a whole misunderstanding where the senator thinks her daughter's a wild child, but she's lying to her mom, pretending to be a wild child because that's what she thinks her mom wants. And then her mom's like, oh, I need to become vice president, so we better track her down, make sure she doesn't anything crazy. And then they go to track her down. There's constant reference to the whole, like, people are going to film her doing this or film her doing that. And, like, they have to, like, make sure that Ashley doesn't get caught. And meanwhile, everyone has their own little side plots. And, like, it was very neat, I found, and, like, very easy to follow. And it was very watchable. Like, I never really drifted or, like, got bored at any point. Like, it moved very fast. It was a really good length. And I really appreciate that one of these movies. Just like any a simple, easy to follow plot, just joke, 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 have it go along, uh, not too long, and it's good. I think for me, this is going to be dipping into things that didn't really work for me. Well, I think we can basically jump onto that because I don't have too much more. Like I've noted basically everything. I think for me, there may be a couple too many scenes in everybody's storyline before we get to the end of the spring break experience where like things happen. I don't have anything like immediately identified, but just thinking about it, I think that's probably how I was feeling. It's like, there's just like a couple of, okay, we could get to the end of this a little bit faster, but it is what it is. I think one of the issues that I had with this is that the idea of being a 30 something woman or 30 something, anybody going to a place that's overrun with drunk young adults 
is a fucking nightmare to me. That is not something that I would want to do. And that's more of like a personal nitpick. And I think this movie, like it's, it's using that. As, that's the whole driving force behind the movie is the contrast and the juxtaposition between these women who clearly don't belong here. And then like all the young spring break culture around them and how they do not mesh. Judy and uh, Charlene never fit in at the club. They never blend or like work. Gail never really fits in with the seven or like, she's very clearly not one of them throughout the whole thing. Like Becky clearly doesn't belong here and a lot of the humor is playing off the juxtaposition of that obviously i felt very similar in that yeah i would never in a million years want to go here or do this this seems awful and i would be so uncomfortable but i think it made for some fun humor because of that and i like that in the end we return to normal and that is clearly being accepted as like their lives are perfect as they are but i can definitely see that and that was one of the thoughts i kind of had when i watched this i don't know if leanne's gonna like love this movie because so much of the humor and so much of the movie is just drunk horny young white teen college students or young 20s college students just screaming and flashing each other and like doing it and just like it was just so aggressive and just everywhere right it definitely didn't shy away from all of that and it's a lot for sure just going back to the sevens for a moment i know when you were talking about them you mentioned that they're all white except for one of them and there's a scene sort of at like just past the midpoint of the movie where they're at a bar and they're talking about how they're a family and mason says to like the one asian girl who's in their sorority she's like and it's like we adopted you and i was like yikes what a weird like you could just say that you're a family and like not have to make a weird chinese baby adoption joke it just was felt really it felt very in line with mason's character for me though i can't disagree (laughs) i mean in line with her character fine but even in 2006 or 2009 not a joke we really need no no wasn't a joke that we needed at all um, and it was just something that kind of bothered me a lot. It definitely brings up the fact that, like, both these movies are like, extremely white. And anytime there's a character that is not white, it is not dealt with well. <laughs> just going off that, a couple things I've written down, like, when they get to the talent show and, like, the first group to come out or second group to come out or something is an all-female Asian group that's set to, like, stereotypical music, doing, like, bowing and stuff. And they're called, like, Ho Chi Minh. Yeah. And it's really down yeah. yikes. And the people writing this were white. <laughs> and yeah, it shows. absolutely. I was, yeah, it was big. And then there's a bunch of like Hawaiian hula dancers after that are like very stereotypical. And it's, I mean, like, they were doing like pretty traditional hula, so that was good. But yeah, it was definitely. But they were like, well, it was also very sexualized. Oh, for and sure. Really, I don't know. It was weird. You don't need to just trot out a bunch of non white sexualized female characters onto stage as being the only non white characters, basically, apart from the one Asian and sorority group that gets made fun of it was a great picture overall to be painting of this movie we could have had any one of these characters been non-white out of our leads and it i think would have... yeah i don't even think the one girl in the sorority even has a single line of dialogue she's just kind so. of no. there and like oh it's like we adopted you uh don't have to draw attention to her in that way yeah. And that's very typical of these SNL features. Like, I can't think of many non-white characters in Baby Mama or any of the Will Ferrell movies, really. Superstar, or 
like none of these movies they're all like of an era when snl was largely white and that's definitely a narrative that's gone through to their movies that they've all gone off and made it definitely uh i haven't watched actual snl in a long time but i get the impression that it's something that still lingers in a lot of the writing even to oh i'm sure day. Uh, more recent snl i've seen at least they've got prominent non-white members that seem to kind of be in uh, more seniority or they've been there for a long time and have like more say over what's happening and stuff like that at least seems i haven't watched it a long time but the little bits and bobs here and there i've seen at least yeah definitely over the snl from this time period it's like gradation <laughs> yeah. in the right direction but not great i know we sort of talked about how the depiction of these women of you know being kind of boring was tongue-in-cheek but like it kind of bothered me a little bit as well because like the type of women that are being depicted by these characters are like people who really exist and i feel like these you know, sort of quiet, awkward people who are real people that exist in the world are always kind of like used as the butt of the joke, especially in like these SNL style movies. And yeah. I just kind of felt over it a little bit. I don't know if it's because we've watched a lot of movies where that's kind of the case. Like I was thinking a lot about how even in Never Been Kissed, Josie Geller's character is kind of a similar situation where you know she's nerdy and awkward and like not really super fashionable and stuff like that like she would probably fit in well with these three leads having the personal pizza night and all playing the movie numbers game like she would definitely fit in no problem and i don't know why this subset of people is always the basis for like discovering that you don't have to compare yourself to other people like i think for me the, the women playing them, I think part of why I somewhat disagree and think for me the highlight is that of those three characters being nerdy is the highlight for me. I think part of it is the three women playing them are very earnest and I don't feel mockery in their performance very much at all. I think they play these characters very earnestly and they it's very different than like what I would say where in Never Been Kissed, it's definitely the butt of the joke where in this, it's hard to tell. Like at times I flip back and forth between thinking like some of the stuff with the cat felt more like joking or mockery than some of the other stuff which felt more earnest or like real. This is probably one of the more depictions of people in their 30s that I really relate to and struck a chord with me and I didn't feel like I was being made fun of. I felt kind of seen almost. This is how I would like to spend a, a, like any given night and like maybe it's just because I don't see enough of that in movies that I really grabbed onto this portrayal and like really wanted to see all that in it and maybe some of that is me projecting that into these characters. Maybe some of it is how earnest I think these women play the characters. I think like on paper it's probably more like it's a joke a lot of it for sure but something about it always brings you back to loving these characters and i think probably a lot of it is how it ends becoming full circle like they're not asked to change and a movie similar to this by other people i think they would come out of the spring break with boyfriends being more i don't know changed i think part of it maybe is also that i don't think they're really shy characters though they're not super introverted like they all seem to be like well socialized at least none of them really have problems going out and like talking to people and like having lives and stuff like we see them at their jobs being them like i don't know 
it's it's hard. Like I see both. I think when I say shy, I'm thinking of Becky just kind of not being assertive at work is where that comes from. But I think like what I'm thinking about is that, you know, they were clearly awkward in university and now they're in their thirties. And like between the time you graduate from university and by the time you're like in your thirties, you have a good window of time to either accept your weirdness and your quirks and like settle mm. into yourself as a 30 something. If they were in their late twenties and they were still grappling with not really, you know, having their university experience of spring break or whatever that might have it's like a weird thing where they were slightly younger i probably would be less bothered by it i don't know maybe it, that's very relatable to me though because i still grapple with that sometimes and it's because the world tells me i'm supposed to the media is constantly telling me that i'm supposed to be going out having more friends like i should i should have more friends i should be going out and doing social things like i should be i should be doing all these things and it's the media really tries to paint a picture of what i should be and so I do have moments where I'm like, am I boring? Like, do I need to be doing more interesting things? Is planning an Ikea trip for a month from now really pathetic and sad? I have moments of thinking that. But then, like, that's what I am and that's who I am and I love that. But at times, you can't always be confident in that. And I think this movie does a decent job of showing that and then showing them in the end, realizing after having gone through this experience, no, we don't need to change. We're wonderful. I think it could have probably done a better job of doing that, though. I think it could have done a better job of reinforcing by the end that who they are is good enough a little bit more than just showing them going back to the status quo, even having some more dialogue of them, like what they've realized and there's not like a lot of that in it that they maybe could have added. Just going back to your comment about the thing with Becky and her cat, I do think that's like the one yeah. place where it was less oh, tongue in cheek sure. and more sort of jokey. Where you know she's talking about how her cat gave her the gaucho pants. They're like your cat can't give you gifts, and just the whole thing that she has with her cat really laid on the sad yeah. single cat lady shtick. Don't have to go that art on it i mean like you can be single and have a cat your whole life doesn't necessarily have to revolve around your cat it was weird it was just probably the one thing that didn't feel like it was tongue-in-cheek and it was definitely like poking deliberate fun at those types of people yeah it's the one thing i wrote down there as well as being like uncomfortable for me i did laugh at the the whole line of and we're gonna dedicate this make your own pizza party to honey and like i laugh because it's stupid but at the same time like we don't need to mock someone for really caring about their pet and like that being their very significant person in their life being their pet because that's real they could have done a good job of i think it's a good like it's not bad that she has a cat she really likes like that's not the problem obviously it's how they deal with that it's yeah. very normal and real and fine for a woman in her 30s that is single to have a cat obviously and we can get some like positive cat lady really uh representation out there maybe but this definitely was not that it was definitely on the mocking scale also the end of the movie after they do their performance at the talent show Becky says something about her dead oh, cat she dedicates it to the uh. dead cat and then like the whole crowd just starts chanting dead cat and it was like what the Again. fuck is happening it was very surreal I laughed it was so dumb but it's like and this was for Huddy my dead cat and the whole crowd goes I mean, that's also after, like, several other things that they say and, like, the crowd. The crowd goes from being, like, what the hell was that performance to, like, Becky gives this whole speech. And, and it's okay if we're weird. And it's okay if we're not this. And the crowd is, like, starting to get into it and, like, starting to cheer. And then, like, everything she says they're cheering for and, like, including the stupid cat thing. And, like, I got the joke, but obviously it was dumb and stupid. I definitely laughed at it, though. <laughs> 
just the the stupid irony of like everyone in the, the crowd chanting dead cat dead cat i'm just like oh god you laugh because how else are you supposed to respond to this crowd of drunk university students chanting dead cat to real stage full of women who just sang <laughs> a song oh. that probably most people there are not familiar with and i think in these movies it's hard because like sometimes the absurdity is on that part of the scale that like okay this is so absurd it works and then sometimes the absurdity of everything is just like okay this is dumb and it's a really hard line to toe and that's why like you throw a dart in a will ferrell movie and i either love it or think it's the worst thing i've ever seen in my life because like it's hard to nail down that absurdity and make it funny still like i think talladega nights is really funny probably it's been a long time since i've seen it i think something like that where like it is so absurd i think like at one point will ferrell's character is out on the racetrack just like screaming to oprah for no reason i don't remember it's dumb but a laugh and then there's movies like a stepbrothers which i like want to gouge my eyes out and my ears and every part of my body comedy is subjective comedy is difficult some stuff in this movie clearly like just didn't work for me in this watch through for sure and it is a little bit of like throwing darts at the wall and like a lot of the darts landed in this for me but like there's some jokes that are like oof, yeah maybe maybe it could have done a quick script revise that being said i think we should probably talk about william okay yes uh let's scroll up a bit so we have avoided talking about this the whole time so far but very early in the movie, we find out that Judy is engaged to Seth Meyers' character, William, who immediately upon speaking for the first time, we realize Seth Meyers is doing just the most stereotypical gay man portrayal that you've ever seen on screen. And it is horribly offensive. And it's so cringy. And like, I think I even pre-warned you about it. It's, it's like every time I watch this movie, it's just, oh my God, what is this? The plot. Thankfully, he's probably in it for like two minutes, but it's two minutes too much. Like the whole joke is that she doesn't realize he's gay. It isn't until she, Judy comes home and she finds William like massaging the chest of their landscaper, their gardener. Juan Carlos or something. You yes, know. Juan Carlo. Like he's <laughs> massaging the pecs of Juan Carlo like in... At least she makes the connection. Because there are a lot of movies where somebody walking in on a scene like that, they would misconstrue what was going on. And that would be the yeah. joke is that they're blind to the fact that their partner is gay. So thankfully, I they didn't do that. I think that is easily misunderstood because I think either Seth Meyers was too cowardly or they rewrote the script or something. And according to the rest of this movie, she should have walked in on Seth Meyers and Juan Carlo doing it. At least, like, there should have been something very overtly sexual between them that she walked in on. Otherwise, her character wouldn't make that connection because she hasn't made the connection yet. Why would this tip her off? This was the most placid, oh, Seth Meyers is gay because he's touching a, a man. Like, it was... But he was touching him in a very sensual way, Sure. Craig. But I think this movie should, if they were going to do it, go there at least or something. Like if Seth Meyers is going to be a, her gay fiance, have him do something actually super gay, not just talk in this horribly effeminate list and like be super offensive the whole movie. I don't know. I feel like according to the rest of this movie, it should have been something more overtly sexual that if they were going to do this. And to me, it reeked of script rewrite. This was as much as Seth Meyers was willing to do. Personally, that's what I think. I was pissed off at it. So if you're going to be this offensive, at least have Seth Meyers behind a couch getting rammed or something like go there the rest of the movie he's did. like going down on Juan Carlo or something like that yes you could have funny like there's like a, a palm tree in the way or something like funny physical gags there's like a giant pineapple in the frame or something and you know could have done something regardless of that yes 
that is the plot line. And then she finally figures it out. And then like everyone else already figured it out. And then at the end of the movie or towards the end of the movie, he comes back and like, I want you back. And like, I want to get married and I'm actually straight. And that was just a misunderstanding all this. And then she takes him back and it's really dumb. And then she finally realizes that he's not into her when he is refusing every sexual advance she makes on him. And she goes, okay, can't do this. It leaves. And it's just such a dumb plot. The fact that she has to use his weird, affected gay talk in order to get him to understand. Uh, his whole thing is that, like, he drops the end of words. or whatever the fuck. Yeah, uh, the abbreviations or whatever. Yeah. In order for him to understand just really mm. everything about the way that he talked, the way that that went down was really awkward. And Every moment Seth Meyers is on screen in this movie is so cringy and bad. He should feel ashamed. I mean, but... this movie is... We're 10 years old now, so maybe he does feel bad. He should be the one trying to get this IMDb credit scrub, not Army Hammer. <laughs> it's very of the time, though. Like, if this was filmed in 2006, that is a skit that was on SNL at least once a month. There was at least once a month one of these characters playing a very effeminate man on SNL. But it's just like SNL, where it's never sexual. It's always caricatures of things like lisps and, and wrists and, like, speech patterns and things like that. But it's never, like, anyone doing anything sexual. It's just a very effeminate character. It's very, like, Stefan or whatever. Yeah, I was going to say, wasn't there, like, a whole running thing with yeah. Seth Meyers and Bill Hader's yes. Stefan? Which they confirmed was actually supposed to be a queer relationship when Bill was getting ready to leave the show. It's so, like, SNL to to shy away from ever like doing anything actually gay and just taking everything only surface level. And when everyone on SNL is straight and white, anytime yeah. you want to depict a character that's not straight or white, I mean, thankfully they didn't do a lot of blackface from what I remember, but it's always until at the bare minimum, they didn't do blackface. Yeah. It's always been uh, a straight person playing a character. Until Kate McKinnon showed up, they really had no queer people doing anything on the show. Thankfully, we got Kate McKinnon so she could just play Ellen every week. But, you know, that's about it. But, yeah, it, that kind of problems with SNL definitely leaks into problems and stuff like this. Where they could have used maybe getting some outside help from uh, people of color or queer people on projects like this would have definitely improved it. Or uh, another plot line that was a little uncomfortable, speaking of, they could have used... Uh, Maybe some some consulting on uh, Will Arnett's character, Ted, who is a blind man who has gotten a guide dog from Gail. And he confesses to Gail that he is potentially ready to start dating. She's like, oh, I've got two tickets to Amy Grant. Would you maybe want to go with me? And before uh, saying yes, he feels up Gail's face and goes, oh, never mind. I'm busy. And it's, I don't know, it was kind of cringy because Will Arnett's whole thing is that he was never looking in the right place. Like she was constantly like, oh, I'm over here or whatever. This is such a cringy, lazy joke. Blind people don't just stare off into the distance the whole time and like have no clue where they are. Yeah. Like it was just kind of it's bad. That brings us to our rating. What would you rate this movie on our scale? Is this perfect as is? Could it use some ketchup or would you douse it? I would say that this could use a good dose of ketchup, especially in like a few key areas. One being our single cavity yeah. representation and the other being the gay character representation. Yeah, disabled character representation, non-white character representation. There's a lot of bad representation in this for sure. It would be bad for me to give this a perfect as is. It does not earn that. But I would say this definitely for me as well could use some ketchup. 
I was pleasantly surprised that there was still a lot of things here that worked for me and that I really thoroughly enjoyed. It wasn't complete Night at the Roxbury where I looked back on this and went like, oh god, why did I like this as a kid? I can see the connections why I liked it. There's even some things I like more now, but it needs more. Yeah, looking back at things with not rose-colored glasses and just being like, oh, fuck, this is not as good as I remember it is always a hard thing to grapple with. That's it for us this episode. Join us again next time as we shift gears towards the holidays. Consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts so that other people can find our show. Your review may lend you a shout out in a future episode. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Movie Catch Up Pod for episode updates and other news.